Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs, episode number 40. On today's episode, I've got an interview with an interesting guy that I met a few years ago here in Las Vegas, Scott Mann. Scott Mann's a guy that owns a company here in town called Renegade Hybrids. Renegade Hybrids is a unique company in which they put V8s in 914s. After talking with Scott for a while, he originally started out as a VW guy. That's how he got bit with the spirit of aggressive driving and sport driving and that of further involved into him getting into 914s and then later trying to find 914s that had a lot of power. So he's got a really interesting story. He's a great guy. He also is the inventor of that uh, stack light trailer that I borrowed to go to the Utah VW Classic. So he's going to talk about how he came up with that trailer. Uh, he holds the patent on that thing right now. And uh, he's got a lot of interesting takes. And I thought it would be interesting to get him on the podcast because of his business that he's in. It's a real niche business. And it's interesting to see how someone who's in a niche, niche business stays busy and keeps things going. So he's got a lot going on. He's got a real interesting story. So let's take a listen to this podcast and let me know what you guys think. Don't forget, if you guys like what you hear on the podcast, make sure you go on Apple iTunes, give us a review, give us five stars. Also, don't forget to support the podcast. You guys can support the podcast by going to letstalkdubs.com and going over to the store picking up some merch. Remember when you buy some merchandise, it goes to support the podcast. So uh, we're going to be coming out with some new shirts on the website this week. So keep an eye out, check it out. And uh, don't forget support your favorite podcast. And without any further ado, Scott Mann. Hey, everybody. In today's podcast, we've got a friend of mine in the studio. Uh, you may have seen on uh, my Facebook page or my Instagram that I had a two-car stacker trailer that caused a little bit of controversy on the Let's Talk Dubs podcast. And the interesting thing is I went to a car show and I own a 50-foot trailer and I didn't want to take the 50-footer. So I ended up, my friend invented a trailer that's barely over 20 feet, but you're able to stack two cars on there. So we'll get into that in a little bit. And he's also a friend of mine that's been Heavy in the 914 scene and some other stuff, and we were talking, and, and he's got some deep VW roots, so um, real interesting guy, and I know you guys are going to dig the conversation today. So today on the podcast, I've got my friend Scott Mann. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And so, so Scott, one of the things that um, that I wanted to start start the conversation on was I met you through some, some uh, PCA driver's education stuff and things like this, and I know that with Renegade Hybrids, you do nine you started out doing mostly like 914 conversions and some stuff and we'll get into the details of that but as we got to talking you started to share your vw story with me and it, it only made sense like i'm like yeah no duh he's into vws because this is how this all stems so what is your vw story and how did you get into volkswagens well it's it was my first love and you never forget your first love right right absolutely <laughs> my very very first car was a 72 stupid beetle and uh I, I absolutely love that car. I ended up putting over 300,000 miles on that and put about seven different engines in it. But uh, even previous to that, my father had three Volkswagen Bugs and and he drove those things into the, he would literally just drive them into the ground because he was commu uh, commuting from the suburbs outside of LA down into LA as a uh, 
telephone repair guy working for, for the uh, telephone company. And uh, it's just, it was always something in our family. There was always a bug or two. And uh, they were they were driven to death and cherished and all that sort of stuff. And God, I wish I had my 72 back. <laughs> and, and, and so the 72 Beetle you had, it's the first year for the Super Beetle. So it had the McPherson strut front end on it? Yes, it did. It had the flat front windshield too, which I kind of dug because it had more of the period correct look. I didn't like sure. the rounded front window. You know, and it, of course it was lighter. And when the McPherson struts, it performed a little bit better. But of course, like everybody was doing back then, because I'm in my 50s, as many of your listeners might be, um, I wanted to do the, the 135, 35, you know, 15s yeah. or 14s or whatever they were and drop the thing down on its haunches and stuff like that. So I was chopping springs and doing the Scirocco upgrade for the suspension and all that sort of stuff. And I went from the 1600 to the 1735 and the 1775 to the, or the 1775. 75 like, to the 1835, right. then the 2120, right, and then 2110, I, yeah. or 2110, okay, yeah, and yeah. then the Ford Pistons, and this, that, and everything else I did all, well, I ended up back at the 1776, I think it was, yeah, was, the, was, mm-hmm. was the most reliable and the best motor that I ever had, because I could actually spin it up RPM-wise, and I was beating more races, and carving the canyons in Southern California, you get the idea, in other words, I was really in love with this car, yeah. and I had a delivery job. And so at the time, I was working for this company, Concept Micrographics, which was doing the old microfiche. So remember the uh, remember the, the the tape? It looked like reel-to-reel tape, but it was yeah. in, on computer programs. Well, they would hand me a stack of those at, let's say, MJM or Litton or some of these old companies from a million years ago down in Southern California. And I would have to run those as fast as I could out to Calabasas so they could turn them into microfiche. And then they would I would nap on the couch and then I would turn around and throw the microfiche back in the car and run them back down there because that was their daily accounting. That was their reporting. That was the process. Really? And so I put ridiculous amounts of money on this and went through all these engines. And, and I did it on purpose because of the fact that I was looking for faster ways of racing back and forth because the second that I was done with my job, I got to go home and I got the same amount of money. So if I got stuck in a traffic jam, it kind of bite, bites, right, but right. you know, it, that's what it was. I was racing bugs when I was 16, 17 years old, back and forth doing this. Through the canyons. Through like, the canyons. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so you, you're, and, and so what we'll get into in a little bit is, is about Renegade Hybrids, which you do these crazy conversions on 914s. And now, for a few years now, plenty of other Porsche models and other mm-hmm. some other stuff that we'll get into the details on. So what happened with the Super Beetle? Where did you evolve then on it? And did you ever take the Super Beetle like uh, SCCA racing or autocrossing or or track track days or any of that kind of stuff? Or it was more like just street fun, novice type stuff? Because obviously, because my listeners may not know that you're a, you're a pro driver and a pro coach. So you, you coach a lot of sport drivers, like enthusiasts and things to that extent. And you're also a pro driver yourself. So That's great. How did you make that transition into being like a pro driver? Like, where does this transition come in at? Oh, it's great. Well, of course, I was very limited by what I could do with the bug and started realizing that there was an iteration of the bug that was a little flatter, slightly longer, mid-engine, and it was built by another company that happened to be married to Volkswagen, and that was Porsche. And the 914 was my second love when it started getting to the point in which I was exhausting any capability of, of making my bug work any harder. And so... Uh, I realized that I could work on them. They were somewhat reliable. I learned later that that wasn't necessarily the case, well, but I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think I think compared to a Beetle, driving a stock 914 aggressively compared to driving a Beetle Correct. aggressively, they're way more reliable and they're flatter and they're... But 
we know in the history of the 914s of the Type 4, we know the longevity of the factory Type 4 motors that mm -hmm. depends on how they're treated. And most people were so used to neglecting their Beetles that they did the same through the 914s. That, and that's, that was the big thing is, is yeah. I thought I could drive the 914 like I could, you know, the Beetle. And right. I'm sorry that just it, it didn't like that at all. And But I mean, I went through seven 914s. My very, very first 914 didn't even have a driver's side door when I went and picked it up. And so it was... Well, they call that a Jeep. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. And uh, so I, I, it was really funny because what happened with that car, it went into a body shop with what little bit of money that I was making. And the body shop actually was broken into and there was a bunch of vandalism and so on and so forth. So the insurance company looked at it and said, well, it's a Porsche. And I said, well, I didn't know where the door was. It was somewhere in the body shop. And they said, okay, well, it must have been worth a lot of money. So they handed me a big check. And I went, that's cool. I'm going to go out and buy a much nicer 914. Sure. And so the evolution went on and on and on. I think my fifth one, that was the one that I decided, you know, there's got to be something else that I could do engine wise. And I discovered this company that's now been around for 35 years, almost 36 years called Renegade Hybrids. Mm -hmm. And that's where I kind of started making the transition because back then, there was another gentleman by the name of Andy Leaney that owned Renegade. And so what I did was I started kind of getting in close with him, bought a conversion kit to do a small block Chevy V8 uh, conversion. I did it, realized that the brakes were the very, very next thing that I needed to go visit, suspension, so on and so forth. But I actually built a pretty formidable car in my mid-20s with the V8 conversion and became really good friends with Andy. And so because that's a big step to make. Like, I mean, to convert an air-cooled car to water-cooled first is a mm -hmm. big step. Second, to take a car as tiny as a 914 and then just shoehorn a V8 in there, that's got to be, it's got to be something that on the, on, on, the, on, the, on, on the regular perspective level, it seems like that's a gigantic thing. But did you, so you met Andy, checked out his cars, and then you were like, well, I'm drive one. You're like, man, the power is like matching the, the suspension. Yes, and then you thought, well, it's worth it because, I mean, I think to a lot of our listeners, you know, there's a lot of people that do a lot of crazy conversions with VW-based vehicles. And the V8 thing is such a hard thing because I think the first thing people start to think about with the conversions is like cooling systems and those types of things. So with what makes, so did you have experience driving his cars that gave you the courage to like, I can do this, I'll do a V8 conversion or were you just like, so power hungry, like you didn't care. Like well, you were the company had already been around for 17 years mm -hmm. when I really started kind of arriving on Andy's doorstep saying, Hey, I'm wagging my tail, I want to do this, you know. And so there was a lot of stuff that was pretty tried and true. Mm -hmm. And and so with the concept of the VA conversion, a lot of the suspension and brake upgrades and things like that that were actually pulled from 911s because the 911s were considerably more formidable cars. But everything is, as you know, in the Volkswagen world, so many so many things are interchangeable. It's just it's crazy, you yeah. know. Um, because of that, it just seemed as if you could take a 914 with some 911 suspension and brake parts, put together an actual decent car. And because it was mid-engine, it didn't really matter that you were adding a little bit more weight. Not a ton, but a little bit more weight to the car. And you could actually drive it because now you've got so much more torque underneath your right foot, you can balance the car better. So it, it kind of fell into Renegade's lap at the time. And then, of course, when I started doing it, I started realizing, wow, this car is a very, very proper car. Yeah. And the first the first thing that really convinced me of that is I took a ride with Andy. Andy, just like I do now with my customers, I do demo rides on occasion and things like that. Well, I'm telling you, I was ready to ride a check before I got out of the car. I'm like, I got to add this. There was no gateway drug, no nothing. I was there. I was hooked line and sinker, you know? Yeah. And so I, I built my first conversion and, and, uh, 
I, I became very close friends with Andy and, and his wife, Emily. And, um, it was, it was several years of me working with them, doing a little bit of sales. I had the gift of gab. I was a broadcaster at the time, lots of connections. I was working with all sorts of different celebrities and things like that. And so some of these people were actually paying some money. And so I, I, I got to the point in which I, I wanted to leave broadcasting, which I was down in the LA market at the time as a broadcaster. I wanted to leave that and I wanted to get into something different. And so I turned to Andy and Emily on the heels of an unfortunate divorce and I said, hey, I want to move out of town and I want to buy your company. And six months later, I moved to Las Vegas and I owned Renegade Hybrids. And I did not know, <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I'll really? be the first one to, I mean, I knew about 914s, but they were doing conversions on tons of other Porsches and things like that. Of course, I had vicariously learned quite a bit, but seriously, that was one of the dumbest things I've ever done. But probably to this day now, I go back and look, that was the life-changing way for me to get out of the LA market and to get um, out of broadcasting because I didn't want to die a disc jockey and and, and I really wanted to get into cars. And and so interestingly enough, I have a question about broadcasting because I think, and because I've known some people that were broadcasters and the perception is like, oh, that guy's in the news. He's making tons of money. Oh my God. It's, it's the ridiculous. <laughs> if, you, if you get minimum like, wage, you're lucky. <laughs> and you, but you know what I mean? Like the, the, I think the perception out there is like, because you think like, why would someone leave from being on TV? Right. Because especially in today's world, everybody is looking for their 15 minutes of fame. Right. And you think like, why would someone leave the broadcasting business to go into something else? But I, I'm sitting here thinking like, man, you, because uh, I'm thinking to myself, you really had to have a, an aggressive passion for driving and for these cars especially to be able to say like, you know what, I'm completely changing gears in my life and I'm going to go down this road. Even to the point where you thought like, well, shoot, he makes it look pretty easy. I think I can jump in and do this thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but also to leave broadcasting where you just kind of like you thought, man, there's no, you know, like you said, you, you don't want to die a disc jockey and you thought like, you look at these old guys that are smoking chain chain smoking two packs a day and like, oh man, that guy and everybody's like, Oh, you look totally different than your voice and like you know, like that type of thing. So you you were just kind of done with broadcasting altogether and and I mean this passion was that strong and you saw an opportunity and thought, I'm jumping into this. It's true. Well, truth be told, broadcasters make squat. But if you're doing the private appearances or private parties, or I, I was I was literally the mobile disc jockey. I was mm-hmm. the guy that was going out doing wedding receptions and bar mitzvahs and things like that. Yeah, I'll admit it. But I was making bank, and I was making huge bank doing that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the broadcasting was the conduit that allowed me to be able to get the gigs because I could say, yeah, I worked at KNX 1070 News Radio. I worked at Q105. I, you know, I did this, I did that, so on and so forth. And of course, hey, they got to have that guy, you know. Yeah. So that's why broadcasters didn't make any money, but the rest of it did pay really. really really well but you're right i walked away from that because again i didn't want to die and die disc jockey for one thing the la market was just coming apart too it was just it was really strange it was so cutthroat and i i think i have a little bit of a heart left and so getting out of la and getting out of the pretentiousness um was something i just felt that i needed to do i just wanted a big change and i've never done anything i don't want to do quite frankly i'm a little selfish bastard you know i just really am and so i wanted to race cars i wanted to build cars and so being as stupid as to say yeah i've got some money i'll buy this company i could do this this is no problem at all take it out to las vegas and realize i'm looking in the mirror going man you're an idiot (laughs) and that's what happened 
because all of a sudden you had all these weekend gigs that were paying all kinds of cash and now you're like you've got Nothing. deadlines and times yeah. and it's like well i can't send a bill to the customer until we're done and we can't get done and i just lost a mechanic and like yep. like you now you're in I, I commuted back and forth to give you an idea for 10 grief. years i continued to keep on going back to la because 10 years yeah because the the market the the money was so incredibly good i needed to go and hang and spin around that pole that's what yeah, i needed to right. do it was hard for she me to get away from it yeah right. yeah exactly <laughs> and what so, year what year was this uh this was back uh, right at 2000 right in the year yeah, 2000 yeah so in 2000 you leave and you and you jump into renegade hybrids now did you have a ton of mechanic i mean you're kind of a typical backyard mechanic like worked on stuff yourself yeah had i mean I've obviously seen a lot of the stuff that you've worked on and developed over the past few years, mm-hmm. and and you kind of have a bit of an engineering mind. Like when you look at things, because you're always looking to approve, improve things or tweak things a little bit or or that, and and you have that broad based appreciation where you look at all different types of stuff. And I see it in some of the things that you develop, and you and you're always trying to build, um, build a better mousetrap. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, I I have the creative engineering end of things. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have the cognizant engineering end of things as well, albeit I've learned a ton of that. I mean, everything from shear to compression to this to that, all the metallurgies and all the various different things that I've had to learn over the last you know 20 some odd years of owning Renegade out here in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's all been a necessity. But my passion is still taking an idea, literally a napkin, like a trailer, so to speak, mm-hmm. and have it turn into something and have it be, you know, have it be, have it work. But I know that working with the uh, a crew of people in, and you have no idea how hard it is to find. I mean, for those people who have never owned a small business, don't do it. (laughs) But quite frankly, it's getting the right crew of people, the right synergy and the right, those people that realize that the boss is still the boss, but he doesn't necessarily need to know how to do each and every single you know, process in your shop. Yeah. I've got a guy that is brilliant with computers and electrical. I got another guy's fantastic fabricator and welder on and on and on. I can't do those things as well as they do, sure. but they work with me together as this, this just great team. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm really proud of my shop and what we so, do. So let me ask you this question because a lot of people listen to this, you know, the, the VW industry, which uh, for those of you that want to write complaint emails right now, I'm just going to have you know that the 914 Porsche was sold at Volkswagen dealerships unless it was a 914.6. Then those were built in Zuffenhausen, the 914.6s. The 914.4s were built by Volkswagen. And badged Volkswagens in Europe. Correct. The only reason Correct. why they, we didn't get the badged Volkswagens here is because the Porsche industry out here was so American, American-oriented American and the right. dealerships didn't want Volkswagens sitting at their Porsche dealerships. Yeah, and so my question is, you talked about, so what I'm bringing it back to is a lot of people listen to this broad, that listen to this podcast are your smaller shops and things like that. How long did it take you going into this blind business that already had like a business model, how long did it take you to get to where you had a good crew that gelled? Because that's sometimes the hardest thing to get going because in, in order to, for you, because like you said, you can do the sales, you can do the Last marketing. year. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's, that, and, and, and the work pool we've seen, the labor pool has really dried up yes. with good quality, especially young, good quality people that really want to, get into fabrication, do, uh, you know, engine swaps and do those types of things. You know, there's so few and far between those shops to find. So it, I just, it took you. I, I just, I just had a great conversation today. The guy says to me, it's actually another shop in town. And he had a customer that was complaining, hey, why don't you get more mechanics? And the guy says, okay, how many people do you know under 40? And he says, a lot of people. And I said, how many of those people actually know how to work with their hands? Yeah. 
pause, crickets, crickets. That's the problem is, is people don't work with their hands anymore. Actually, your listening audience, I'm going to give them a huge compliment. Anybody that takes something old and goes and takes it apart and puts it back together and maintains it and restores it and is able to work with their hands is actually someone who's going to go much, much further in this world, in my opinion. I understand that there is a lot of ability with software, hardware, computers, um, and Google and everything like that to be able to go far. But I'm telling you, the day that all of this stuff accidentally gets shut off because of whatever we may be going into in the future, it'll be people like you and I that know how to spin a wrench, know how to actually put things together, weld, construct, so on and so forth, that is going to save the day. I really, I believe that. No. No, it's I mean it, it, it's it's interesting to watch the dynamics of things change because there was this huge push for all these kids to go to college mm-hmm. and now everybody that works at Starbucks has gone to college and <laughs> you know you have everybody's chasing an image of what they want to do but there's no satisfaction and, and to me I think if you're working with your hands and you're doing something you step back from a job and you've like you've made something tangible yep. that either people can enjoy or people can consume or whatever whatever that process is there's gratification in doing that but there's also that ability of like the self value that you create because you can actually do something. So, you know, hopefully one day they'll put shop classes back in school. But so back to where we were, we were talking. So it took you, I mean, you've been in business 20 years now as mm-hmm. Renegade Hybrids. It took you 19, roughly 19 years to really finally get to a place where your company can gel. Because so I use your companies a lot for examples because I talk to people a lot of times and I go, look, man. I know you think the VW business is hard or you think this is hard, but I know a dude who builds 914s and takes $1,500 cars and finds people that put $50,000, dollars $70,000 in these cars because they're chasing something. So when you're telling me niche market, I know the guy who's pretty successful who's in a niche, 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 niche market. <laughs> so you know what I'm saying? And, and so for some of our business owners out there, what can you attribute some of that that business success to? And what we mean about business success is that I've never been to your shop and like, hey, there's there's crickets here. There's no cars. There's no anything. Like, how are you able in such a niche market to keep customers coming in? Um, I'd love to have an actual real answer. I would have to say luck is better than skill. I'm sure there's some skill in there, but I think a lot of it has to do with um, there is still a passion by a large portion of the car marketplace mm-hmm. will say people out there that that grew up around 914s 911s and so on and so forth there's still a passion for them to own the car that they dreamt about when they were kids and the problem is is they don't necessarily want all of the lack of reliability lack of power lack of performance and stuff like that because now they can go rent a car that's faster than a 914 that is on the cheap end of the rental scale Mm -hmm. you know and so i think what they're doing is is they're seeing wait a second i can get that car that i dreamt about for such a long period of time that i still have the poster in the book and i can get it in today's modern ac fuel injected type configuration that'll smoke a corvette any day and so that's what i think I really honestly think that that's where that it drives the people. And then me being the business owner, I, it's just like Andy gave me the ride. I give him the ride. Oh boy, do I give him the ride or I take him to the track or I do whatever, something like that. And then I do the videos and so on and so forth so that I can show them that it's not just a straight line car that smokes the tires for three seconds worth of full throttle and that's yeah. it. And then it breaks and it dies. 
I'm saying, hey, let's take it on tour. Let's go to let's go to Yellowstone. You know, let's go to different places. Let's really enjoy this car. So I really think I think that people are still as far as car lovers go, I really think that they're still grabbing at what they look at as yesteryear's passion and bringing mm-hmm. it back because they can afford to do it now. We have a very small demographic of people, sure. but you're right. When a 914 owner, a 911 owner, or remember the 928 from Risky Business yeah. wants to do a conversion, they start looking at the stock motors and going, uh-uh, I'm not going that direction. Yeah, it says Porsche, and you're like, I'm going to spend $8,000 to get 182 horsepower. Yeah, it again. ain't working. <laughs> it ain't <laughs> right, working. Right. Or the 944s. I mean, geez, you can pick up a 944 for like 1500 bucks. Yeah. I race a 944 in, a, in an event called One Lap of America every single year. And I always uh, compete in vintage foreign. And we, we're, we're fast. I mean, we're almost as fast as most of the modern cars. And we don't have any ABS or any traction control or anything like that. And people say, now that's really cool. Now, the 944 <laughs> that you race in that, in that one lap, uh, in that one lap deal yeah is that v8 powered yes it is of course so what is it so it's an ls motor in that absolutely it's only an ls1 too it's not anything i mean we're the rear wheels were just right at about 400 horsepower so i know some people are beating their head like ask the question right now so obviously (laughs) the question because our our audience is a big diy audience right so and and this is for you 914 lovers out there your you vw 914 lovers vw slash porsche um so somebody, so because this business and this this industry, the VW people are so hands on. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants to do a conversion. They've got a nine fourteen, like the one you walked past in my driveway when you came into the studio. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so, so you've got a nine fourteen, and someone, you know, it's a young kid. He wants to get his hands dirty and do this, and he's going to go get an LS from the wrecking yard or yeah. whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. What does it cost him if he's doing the labor himself to do a conversion? What, what's the what's the most economical that it could be for him to buy all the conversion parts and pieces? As cheap altogether as ten grand. So ten grand. And let me let me go through that just sure. really really quickly sure. because I don't want to I don't want crickets on the other end. Your no. listeners have got to understand that a five point three liter truck motor, all aluminum, is not a sought after motor. And I'm telling you, that's a great motor for a nine fourteen. You take that 5.3 liter so out saying, of the salvage yard for 600 bucks. So that's including the motor in your budget you're building right now. Yep, that's that's exactly okay. right. Yeah, absolutely. You take that $600 motor mm-hmm. and then you go and you literally get a carbureted intake, which they do make carbureted intake takes for LS motors. Mm-hmm. So you can actually put that on there, put the uh, carburetor on it, go get, um, I think MSD makes it now. It's a, a coil pack, a uh, reluctor ring generator. It's basically, it's a type of an ignition system that works with the existing coil packs. Mm-hmm. And so... So now you have about $2,500 into the motor total, and now you have a good running, strong, carbureted, small block, but it's all aluminum, and it's super lightweight. So there's your key for your 914 because you're keeping your weight down. Then you turn around, you pick up a conversion kit from us. So conversion kit plus the cooling system and everything like that, you're probably $5,500, somewhere right around in that. And then if you notice, I haven't even used all the money yet. You got to do a brake upgrade. And you got to do a little bit of suspension in the rear. You don't even really have to touch the front, but you got to do a brake upgrade because I really, I, I mean, my family's out on the street, your family's mm-hmm. out on the street and some kid that's going to turn around and do something where they're going to do the small block Chevy conversion, but not do a brake upgrade is going to learn really quick. 914s don't have good brakes. Right. So a couple grand on brake upgrade, there's your $10,000 and that's a proper car. I've done it before. That is a proper car It for a couple grand more. You got fuel injection for a couple grand beyond that. You've got great suspension. You know, you could go on and on and on and all the way down that. But the key is for 914s, number one thing, and all your Volkswagen people know this, rust, rust, rust are the three most important things you got to watch out for. Yeah. 
So if you get if you've got a good solid car to start with, because here's the reality in the desert out here, you, I see nine fourteens on Craigslist all the time, six seven hundred bucks. Yeah, it's true. But, like I didn't even go. I had a I, I saw an ad a, a week ago, and it was like guy posts all these pictures of nine fourteen parts, and I was like, hey, where's it? He sent me his address, all this stuff, and then I just never got a chance to go by there. But you know, they're they're so economical. They built I think I want to say about one hundred sixteen thousand nine fourteens. They did that many. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> according to my uh, handbook here. Uh-huh. And um, it uh, it but that was in that was over the I think it was uh, five year the five year span that they built that car. But with that car being so inexpensive, I think what people are thinking people are going, oh man, ten grand that's a lot of money. Well, here's the reality: ten grand is what it's going to cost you to build a nice VW motor. Like if you build, I, I know that's the thing is is I, I mean, your audience knows when they really start looking at it. It's not like you're going to buy a, a five hundred dollar motor out of Hot VWs from nineteen eighties anymore. I mean, that ad mm-hmm. in the back has been long since gone. You want a proper motor, you're going to spend almost ten thousand dollars. You do but, an entire VA conversion kit. <laughs> so let me so let me ask this question: If if you get a takeout motor out of the wrecking yard, because I've always had this thought, like if you're pulling a takeout motor out of the wrecking yard, um, do a compression check on it, and it's pretty decent. Because is, is is the philosophy behind that like it may not necessarily need a rebuild because it's pushing something that's a third the weight, so you're you're not really taxing the motor, and even it's got even if it's got some miles, I mean the LS motors are just like incredibly reliable motors i mean I, I i've had unless you start getting kind of into the uh the ones that have the adjustable hydraulic lifters that shut down cylinders thing like right, that right. You, if it's not maintained you could have some of those issues but really in hindsight thinking about it like you're saying you get that car 10 grand you buy a 914 for two you put 10 grand you're 12 grand in a car and you've got a car that can beat things up at the track Yes, because well, I'll tell you. Okay, at the track, let's let's well, hold let, on. Let's let's go back, and Let, I'll tell you why I'm thinking that. Because <laughs> okay. I was out there with my nine nine. I was out with my nine nine six one day at the track at Spring Mountain Motorsports running right. the track. Right, and I'm out there just hauling the mail, or thinking I was in a stock nine nine six, and in the corners I could not shake this nine fourteen guy. And I'm thinking, oh, he's probably got a V eight. That's, <laughs> that's Roger. Thinking. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and then I get to the pit and the straightaways. I'm leaving this guy. I'm leaving this guy in the straightaway. I, and then every time I hit the corners, this guy's just right on my bumper. And I go to I go in the pits after our session's done, and I kind of like, oh, what what do you got in that thing? What how big is the motor? He's like, ah, oh, just. <laughs> It's just a 1.8 liter. And what this guy's just, he's just floorboarding the thing and he's right on me. And there's no, there's no V8 in the thing. And I was thinking, like, that's kind of scary because if a guy put a V8 in this thing, it would probably never leave my back bumper. And here I am in a car that's 30 years newer Mm -hmm. than that. And I'm just thinking, it's incredible. So the technology is there. Like, and that's what I think because people, Everybody wants a rate. I mean, you look at all the custom VWs. Everybody puts the Porsche LAs. They lower them for better better ride, handling, and suspension. Right. Put a big motor. They want it to drive fast. And and really, you could get real pretty close to really raw race car feel out of a 914, especially with the V8 conversion. It's um, it's definitely a slot car. Mm-hmm. It definitely responds really well on city streets. Depending on your skill level on a track, going out and doing a DE event or something like that, it would do okay, but it wouldn't take very much more for you to actually get to the point in which it uh, it on the track would do quite well as well. There is there is a difference though, and and the funny thing is a lot of people only because you know my pro career when you, when you start looking at real race cars and you look at street cars turned into race cars, there is a huge huge difference, and so. 
you know, before you get a bunch of hate mail, I start getting the same hate mail or anything like that. When we talk about a race car, when you're going to go wheel to wheel racing, that's a different type scenario. And but that, when you're, and, and, and that's but, not what I mean. I, I mean, like, is it just going out and do a track weekend absolutely. or something like that or whatever? Yeah. Your, your multi purpose car, like something yes. you can, I mean, and a 914 is really not like a multi purpose car. It's like you, your girlfriend of the dog pick. Yeah. One of them's got to go. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? It's like, <laughs> that's it. But the reality is, I'm, I'm thinking if you want fun, like a, because t- I tried to tell someone the other day, because I've drag raced, I've done the thing at the Speedway where you drive the NASCAR, I've done a bunch of stuff. Sure. I never had more fun ever in my life than going to a track event. I mean, <laughs> like I went to that track event and I was seriously like, you know, uh, I think at the time it was like $15,000 for membership. I was like, you know, 15000 is not actually that bad. You know, I'm sitting here talking myself into it because when I'm on the track driving my car, so I'm, 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 I'm so engaged. Like you're, you're actually able to be on a track driving the car to its maximum limit in a safe environment. Yes. And really you get that inner self-competitiveness. Like, I think I can shave three seconds off there. I, I know if I do this different, right. Or I stop, I stop shorter here. Do you go through this whole thing and, you know, when I was out there with my 996, I was having all kinds of fun. And the, my split project started with my thought process of like, I want to be back on this track in my 51 split window and people like <laughs> eyes bugging out of their head. So my split window, when, when I started doing the project, and I'm sure someone's out there going, there he goes, bringing up one of his cars again, but it's my podcast, deal with it. Um, <laughs> As you should. <laughs> my sp- And my split window, I did the coilover suspension. Yep. It was, uh, it's Kevin with cool rides customs builds them. They were started by Mendiola, but, but I have the four coil suspension with the coilovers and, you know, front a arms and all that stuff for my 51 split window, because I want to, I love my Volkswagen so much and I love the track so much that I want to be able to come back to the track in my Volkswagen Mm -hmm. because not only is it cool factor 11, you know, I would go past 10, right to 11. Right. But it's just like, I never had so much fun on a track. Like mm-hmm. it, it was like, and, and, and a lot of us guys that like straight line race and things like that would think like that's a whole different world. And if any of you guys ever want to try some of that stuff, I would suggest doing like the guys that upset me one day. Cause one day there was this Mustang on my back bumper and I'm like, dude, I can't like a brand new Mustang. I pull in the pits. I'm talking to them. I'm like, Oh, is that your Mustang? He's like, no, it's a rental. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was thinking myself, like why, why didn't I think of that? I just went to the rental car place or rented a car yep. and beat it up on the track. But it's it's such a blast to do that that you know and, and then coupling like that experience with my Volkswagen is the is the genesis of my split window project. So hopefully I just heard word today I'm about I, I he said two weeks so I'm saying thirty days away from getting my split window which is ninety percent together it needs interior wiring and finishing when I get it back. Would you track that though? I, I, in two seconds. Are you serious? In two seconds. God, you got moxie. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't know. Can we say balls? You can say balls. Say <laughs> okay, balls. good. Okay. You, you know, my philosophy on when you build a car, it's like, why build such a great car designed to do stuff and not do it? And I think, how cool would that be just to see that split window just ra- I, I completely agree. Just railing it. You know what I mean? I, I Absolutely. So, I think it's awesome. I hope that I'm out there watching it. Well, <laughs> trust me. I'll be calling you because I know you got a little bit of pull at the track. So yeah, I'm like, yeah, 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 hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so now with your business, so uh, in your business, doing the 914. So the primary business was starting out doing 914 conversions, but there are other cars that you do conversions well, now actually 914s and 911s 914s and 911s and, and so um uh, you know in essence 
Um, that's where it started from before I was ever involved. But to give you an idea, we're doing almost every single Porsche on the planet now, with an exception of anything that would be an SUV or looks a little bit like a station wagon, mm-hmm. you know. And so basically all of the 911s all the way up through 2008, 2009, right around in there, all of the Caymans, all the Boxsters, and the 944s, of course, 928s, 964s, 968s, 911s, 914s. Um, and all the iterations of everything in between. So, um, and that's VA conversions, primarily LS now because the all aluminum LS platform is so much better than anything small block. But we do support the small block stuff and a lot of those uh, model numbers. And so, yeah, that's what we're doing. And maybe because I keep going in my head, like thinking like what the listeners are thinking about. The the biggest thing I think the advantage of maybe buying one of your kits is like a lot of the engineering's been done. So if someone buys your kit. Mm-hmm installs their motor properly and does that you typically don't have very many cooling issues because i think that's the big question everybody's gonna have like cooling issues because that's probably the biggest challenge in the beginning of these conversions is setting up the cooling system properly and it's interesting because that is the biggest challenge but that's also for me as a business owner the biggest challenge to try to get through to the general public because the people that buy the conversion kit but don't buy our cooling system or think oh it's just a radiator and they try to do it themselves are the ones that hurt us the most because of the fact that that's what it is is oh i can only drive the car for 15 minutes before it overheats well what conversion kit do you have well i have renegade hybrids do they say but i don't have their cooling system no they don't do that and so inevitably what happens all the time is we get people calling up saying, yeah, I hear the things, the things overheat all the time. Have you ever figured out your overheating issues? We don't have any overheating (laughs) issues. We're in Las Vegas for a reason. We test these cars all the time. And when it's 110 degrees out and you're running your air conditioning in your 914 or in your air-cooled 911 or something like that, which has now been water-cooled because you've done the conversion Mm -hmm. and it's nice and cool on the inside and it works fantastic and you're still able to put your foot on the floor and drive it hard. People go, wow, I had no idea. This must be something new. No, it's not. We've been doing successful cooling systems in air-cooled cars with water-cooled conversions for a very long time. So you've probably seen your fair share of like, I don't need to buy a Renegade. And then someone oh yeah, and then someone like brings you a car like, you know, I bought this V8 converted and it's a uh, Bluebird or whatever yes. brand of conversion it was. Or like, oh, this dude in wherever, Oklahoma. He did this conversion <laughs> and the guy's like, bring the car. And you're like, I've never seen a radiator mounted to the back window before. But so you've probably seen your fair share of oddball stuff. On our website, we have a wall of shame. Yeah. So And I haven't added to it in years just because it just got so thick. And I just went, oh my gosh, humanity, whatever. Yeah. But I, but I, but in this, in this industry, there's so many people that, that are trying to get that, that work done on a discount or do it without yeah. having to spend a bunch of money because that's why we buy that's why we originally start with Volkswagens and 914s because if you had the money to go buy a McLaren you go buy a McLaren you know what I mean yeah so it, it's 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 always that race of getting the power for the money and getting getting your maximum enjoyment out of the money you spend and that that piece of satisfaction so seeing all those conversions what's the craziest thing like you've ever seen that just like floored you where you thought like I mean you thought, I can't believe this guy made it here without dying. I mean, you see some funky stuff coming. I'd have to say, funky for sure, but I'd have to say the biggest thing is, is when they take an old rusty 914 chassis, not identifying, and it happens to be 914s, which are the worst, but not identifying that the thing is literally like the Flintstones, you can put your feet through the floorboard type routine, and your Volkswagen people will know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. 
And they they either don't spend one single dime on doing anything to the chassis, just thinking, I don't know, it's going to hold together for, you know, 400 horsepower. And they put some giant stroker motor in it and the thing literally breaks in two. And that's we've seen it. It sat in my shop. There was one of those many years ago. It sat in my shop, a broken car. That's probably the worst. But. I think the second worst thing is the scary part when you don't see all of that because someone came along and covered it up. You guys, again, in the Volkswagen yeah. industry know what I'm talking about. They fiberglass and tar the floorboards so that you don't see or bondo the floorboards so that you don't see it. And then all of a sudden, it's all great. So I teach my customers. I say, take a small screwdriver. And when you're looking at a car, start poking around on the floorboard and keep just keep poking in all the, you know, the hell holes of the 914 mm-hmm. or the bugs had their own, you know, special suspension points and various different things like that. Poke around in those spots that you know are telltale spots where rust is gonna you know gonna be a big issue and then what happens is is once you find that rust then you can start exploring how bad it gets before you make that purchase or decide to walk away and that's the scary part so it's normally not the lack of common sense you know with the chassis that's the big thing so with the uh and it was interesting one of the facts i wanted to bring up that you told me when I said, why would you put, because I, 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 I looked at it like, we're, we're, because we're VW guys, we're like, why would you do a water-cooled V8 engine, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, why would you put an LS motor in like this 911 turbo, like, you know, 78 911 turbo? Isn't it heavier than the V8? And I, I said that to you and you're like. No, it's 180 pounds lighter. <laughs> and that blew my, it blew my mind. I'm like, yeah. this LS, aluminum LS motor is 180 pounds lighter. That's That's like driving without another passenger in the car that you didn't know you had with you. Past the rear wheels, hanging on your rear bumper, by the way. Yeah. And and on top of that, think of the turbo lag. I mean, that was one of the biggest problems of the 930s. Anything 930, so essentially the 70s and 80s turbo cars, single turbo, you step on the gas, you basically have lunch, and all of a sudden you get hit by a two by four because that's the turbo and it comes in. And then right about the time that you get hit, the car's already starting to rotate around the corner because you didn't have any torque to be able to keep the back end from from scooting out from behind you. And when it hits you, it sends you straight into the guardrail. And so, I, I mean, that's why they called them the Widowmakers. They were, they were exceptionally appealing cars in the most dangerous and per- precarious way you could ever possibly imagine. Yeah. You know, so in a straight line for the novice, it could kill you still. But we just turn around and take the turbo out, take all the weight past the rear rear axle, all that huge, heavy extra weight, turn around, do the V8 conversion. And now you actually have an exceptionally nice car you got nice J-Lo back end with the big tires on the mm-hmm. rear. You've got a nice, th- uh, strong uh, 934 speed gearbox in it. Big horsepower is no problem. Huge brakes on the car is awesome. And I used to own one of those. And had I had known that they're now worth over $100,000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've all had our Volkswagens we sold. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I was at uh, Desert Breeze Park. A couple years ago, I was at Desert Breeze Park, and I had about $15,000 in my pocket to buy a 9, 930 Turbo that uh, was all white on white. And the guy <sighs> guy wanted 17000 for it, and he started it, and it was puffing smoke. I said, <laughs> I'm no sucker. I ain't buying this car. <laughs> oh my god! I could have, and we had negotiated. I was like, "Well, seventeen thousand, but you want, you know." And I, but I, this was probably ten years ago. I'd have to say. And I met the guy at Desert Breeze Park, and and I think to myself, if I just bought that car and parked it, yep, outside, mm-hmm. I would have tripled my money. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Actually, the engine smoking would yeah. be worth that money. Yeah. Not even the rest of the car now. <laughs> it's, it's it's just insane. And so as I was looking through my new 2019-2020 uh, Porsche buyer's guide, Yeah, the 914s are finally starting to push up where they yeah. 
they've been I, I think they've been undervalued for a while and when you start to realize the flexibility of that car and the actual performance i mean even the performance in stock trim is just it's in a, it pulls almost a g on 165 tires mm-hmm. which is incredible so starting with that platform these cars are there it's a great base car to start doing any kind of performance stuff so um one of the questions i wanted to ask you about was you did one of my favorite 914s that i've seen converted and and listen just because i'm maybe a traditional guy to some degree one of my favorite ones that i've seen is a green one on the cover of excellence with baseball bat flare fenders and all this Yep. And it had a Subaru conversion. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And, and so I looked at it thinking like, oh, that's so great because it's a Subaru. It's a horizontally opposed forward. Now, you said when we spoke a little bit, you told me you did you did try doing a few Subaru conversions. Well, we still offer the kit. So you do, you do have a Subaru conversion kit. Absolutely. Now, what's your thought process between – because maybe some people might say, okay, it's easy for me to swallow a Subi conversion – Versus a V8, you know, some of the people that are are like trying to be a purist, but still drinking the Kool-Aid, like not, they're kind of on the fence. What's your take on the Subi conversion? Because my, my thought on it was like, oh, that's cool. It's still horizontally opposed. It would be like the updated evolution of that. And, and actually, that's how we marketed it. That's exactly what I said. As I said, the reason why we want to build this kit is because if the 914 stayed in the product line in the Volkswagen Porsche mm-hmm. umbrella, it would have turned into XYZ, which would be more of this late model fuel injected, you know, uh, opposing four, you know, style setup, yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. And it still would have had um, a lot of the fun, like the target top, removable target top and things like mm-hmm. that. Well, ironically, you know, with the Boxsters and things that you see nowadays, that's kind of the evolution where it went to. But there is a reason why I'm not a big fan of the Subarus versus the V8s. Most of it has to do with the loud pedal. If right. you if you put the same amount of money into the two different cars, mm-hmm. because the Subaru conversions are not particularly cheap, and it's not because our conversion ship, uh, um, our conversion prices are much different. It's primarily because of the fact that it is a little bit more expensive to go down the opposing four Subaru turbo, you know, type direction, and there are some iteration changes, and you've got to have special, you know, fuel, uh, uh, what do they call them, fuel controllers, and various different things like right. that. You know, just all this extra stuff that. Because it takes the simplicity out of it. And, and that's because you're staying EFI, yes. computer controlled, all that kind of stuff, which which makes it more difficult to integrate versus LS carbit done. Yeah. And, and we, by the way, the, the carburetor idea was just the, on the cheap. On the budget side. Yeah. Yeah. We do 99.99% fuel injected LS engines. And a lot of them are the GM crate engines that have a two year warranty at any dealership anywhere in the US, which is great, you know. But but going back to the Subaru, if you kind of go that down that direction, you're not buying brand new crate engines. Mm-hmm. You're buying something out of a salvage yard. Then you're dealing with the turbo. Then you're dealing with essentially all of the fuel management and all that sort of stuff. You're putting it into, um, weight wise you're putting it into a pretty lightweight car which is good except for the fact that now you're taking a hit as far as horsepower goes and then you got the turbo lag and 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 so in other words essentially yes there's going to be a lot of subaru guys out there that says well i I can do 500 horsepower on my subaru wrx sti well first of all that engine is four times five times the amount of money as an ls engine brand new directly from gm performance that's going to do 500 horsepower and do it reliably Mm -hmm. secondly that's going to be a very, very difficult engine to keep alive. And whereas, I'm sorry, an LS engine, you could, they, they just, they'd never die, you know? Yeah. And last but not least, it just seems like in order to get that amount of horsepower, you're getting into exotic fuels, you're getting into 
um, crazy clutches. You're getting into all this sort of stuff. Whereas with the VA conversion, it's just so much easier. So I have people call me all the time. Yeah, I'm interested in buying a Subaru conversion kit. Tell me a little bit more about it. I do it. I'll sell it to them. I have no problem with doing it. Mm-hmm. I'll even build them in-house conversion. But nine times out of 10, when I start telling them about the benefits of doing the V8, as a matter of fact, I just did it the other day. They'll say, I want to do a V8. Absolutely, positively. And away we go. So with the V8, you mentioned the target top on the V8. Do you have to weld in a target top on a V8 conversion? Not at all. So the the, the big misnomer about transaxle style cars versus a standard, we'll say, a Mustang with an engine in the front and a pumpkin in the rear mm-hmm. is the fact that all that twist, et cetera, et cetera, tears the car apart. No, it's not true. Think about a transaxle car for a second. Mm-hmm. The engine itself is connected right to the tranny, and then you have output flanges on the sides of your transaxle. So actually, the engine isn't twisting as much as it is just either lifting or pushing down. And so in a 914 or a 911, it's not as if the chassis is resisting the twist, like you got a motor in the front and a, mm-hmm. and a pumpkin in the rear. And so really, what is tearing the chassis apart, and Volkswagen people really listen to this, because this is the big difference between when these cars were developed a million years ago and today. It's the tire technology. It's because we now have the ability to be able to get a very, very small tire to stick incredibly well around a corner. And if you're running with a transaxle style design, that engine isn't making any effect at all, but your chassis is resisting massive amounts of cornering energy. And we're used to driving today's cars pretty hard. Well, if you go back to the old 75 series bias ply tires that these most of these Volkswagens and of course 914s originally had as brand new, they didn't grip particularly well. And so because of that, they didn't have to make the chassis that that well. So that's really one of the biggest misnomers about the industry is you're putting all that that engine in there, you're going to rip the thing apart. No, going around corners will rip it apart just about as fast. Sure. Sure. So there you go. Hmm. So we talked about that for a little bit. Now I wanted to, so what I want to talk about next was the, the trailer, the trailer that you do. So we're going to what move, the hell are you doing, we're, Scott? We're, we're going to move. We're going to move into stack light trailers, and I and so I I so this is a an obvious plug and full disclosure. Thank you. I, I was at uh, I, I stopped by to visit you. I was just in the neighborhood, and I thought, oh, let me go by see Scott. So I cruise in your place, and we get to talk, and I was like, you're like, check out this trailer, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go up to a car show not long from now, and. Maybe I'll take that thing up because I'm going up with one and I'm bringing back two. And I have my own trailer, but you saw it on my lot next door. Yeah. It's 54 feet. So it it's like gargantuan. Yeah. So <laughs> it is. I mean, listen, you look like the boss when you pull up with it, but no one can really see you because you got to park two miles away and unload right. the cars and drive them in. All right. And so I, I used your trailer this weekend and I found your trailer to be really, really easy to tow because I tow trailers. I mean, I, I've got a 22 foot car trailer of my own. I have an 18-foot car trailer that I'm picking up tomorrow, and then I've got my 54-footer, and I have to say, the the tongue to rear axle weight to the axle ratio, the distance there, it's been thought of pretty good because I mean I was swinging that trailer into some pretty pretty tight deals trying to meet up with my daughter at her college, and I was getting a little frustrated. I'm like I'm like. I've got two cars in a trailer and you just can't be on the side of the road. But I mean, I'm, I'm weaving it out of parking lots and it was really an easy, easy trailer to tow. And I post, I made a post on let's talk dubs.com and kind of showed off the trailer a little bit. Talk about the, cause some people looked at it and goes, Oh, you're not going to get two buses on and all that kind of stuff. And, and my whole point behind it was, no, this is a 20 foot trailer that you can pull. I don't know. It was the exact size, 22 foot, 22 feet. It's actually the, the trailer itself is 18 foot. The deck, the deck. Then you've got the tongue of four. Yeah. So you're 22 feet, tongue to tail. Correct. 
which is inc- it's smaller than my 22 footer I have it's, out there. It, it fits at a storage lot in a single spot. That was my biggest thing is that I want to make sure that when someone stores this at a storage lot, they're not paying for a double long. And I think, and I hauled probably short of two buses. I hauled a square back and I hauled the, um, the bus on there and I hauled them pretty, I mean the bus, I couldn't have found probably a bigger wind sail to put on the back of that trailer. <laughs> it towed, it towed really well. Um, and that's one of the things I want to talk about. Like, how did you come up with the design for that trailer? Because you you also hold the patent on that trailer, correct? Yeah. And so it's a pretty unique design based on the fact that it's so small and you can get so much done with it. Um, tell me why you came up with the design for that Stacklight trailer. Well, because today most people own either an F-150 or a Tundra or a Ram 1500 or something like that. And uh, the half-ton class pickup truck now tows 10,000 pounds. I thought to myself, well, I could put two race cars on a trailer and I could go and, you know, my girlfriend and I can go out to Spring Mountain or someplace like that and go have a good old time where we're not owning two trucks and we don't have to have two trailers. And it's just that plain and simple. I think I could do this. And now keep in mind for the the listeners, they're not actually, they haven't gone to stacklight.com yet, you know, which stacklight, stacklighttrailers.com. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Stacklight. I don't even know. I don't even know. Stacklighttrailers.com. L-I-T-E. So, so when, when they, when they finally get there, they'll get the idea, but really quick for, for just the radio world, it's a flatbed standard trailer with a backpack. And the backpack is essentially a secondary uh, ramp that is at an angle kind of hanging off the back. And everybody says, well, if it hangs off the back, that means it's going to have no tongue weight. No, no, no. It's, designed in such a way that where the wheels are and where the balance point is you can you can you could weight it wrong but honestly common sense is going to dictate that you're going to be able to load it properly and it's going to work out really really well but i digress to give you an idea i wanted to carry two cars i had to get them to a racetrack and i wanted to do it with one truck and then i started thinking wait a second there's also a bunch of other people that happen to live north of the border up in canada that want to go out down to havasu and they've got a golf cart and a camry or they've got a razor and a camry or they've got a smart car and a camry hmm there might be a good actual market there a lot there. of camrys in canada well yeah well just you know it's the old <laughs> folks they they they, they like camrys you know and then and then i started thinking wait a second there's also going to be the off-road vehicles you know you've got these side-by-sides what if we actually had a trailer that carried two side-by-sides and everything needs to be geared to work behind a half ton class pickup truck because that's the mom and pop vehicle mm-hmm. you know or an suv or something like that this is the way I'm going to do it, is I'm going to make an incredibly lightweight, very versatile trailer. Yeah, the trailer empty was super light. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole idea. And make it so that, I mean, if you're going to load it up and be a moron and put 20,000 pounds on it, I'm sorry, it's not going to work well for you. But if you're like a Volkswagen person, which I absolutely love your audience, you guys are the ones, you're going to carry two, carry two cars to a car show, mm-hmm. or the husband and wife both have their own cars, or you got a fastback and a squareback and you want to show, you know, two different iterations or whatever the case may be, this is the trailer for you. And these are the type of people that I want to, to go after this, the, this trailer and this idea because of the fact that it's not built for the guy that has two giant 7,500-pound off-road beasts. Yeah. It's built for the lightweight cars. And all you got to do is just look at the European market because, I mean, really, Europe does things very differently than we do. And obviously, that's where... Germany and Volkswagen is located. And so if you look at everything that they do over there, everything is very, very teeny, weeny, tiny, and small. And I keep on thinking, we're going that way, guys. 
Yeah. We're going that way. So that half ton class pickup truck that tows 10,000 pounds is going to have to do a lot of work. And you know what? This trailer is going to be able to take two cars. And so. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I what I appreciate. And I, and we talked about getting you some feedback on the trailer just because I probably could have picked two of the most oddball VWs, like a, two Beetles <laughs> or a Beetle and a Gia. Easily tow, square right. back in a Gia. I mean, I pulled a square back in a bus. You and know? you put the bus on the backpack because obviously that's the only place it's going to fit. Correct. I get that. Correct. And it worked. Well, and, and one of our guys driving up to Utah blew fourth gear, but he had a single cab pickup. And I thought, when, and they were they were a few hours ahead of me. And I said, well, if I catch you, I can unload the square back. You can drive my square back and I can load your single cab truck because the back of the bed drops down and fold the gates down and it would fit sure. underneath the 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 uh, ramp bars in the right. front. Right. But what I what I liked about the trailer was well, the first time that I used, which was interesting, it's the first time I, I towed a trailer with uh, wheel straps that strap the tire itself and not the chassis because I'm used to grabbing hold of the chassis and then ratcheting it down right. and putting the, the chassis under some stress. So it was a different experience towing that way. I really like the deck and, and the deck design having those um, those type of straps because at any point you're tying the car off and normally with my other trailer I've had a well done D-rings and some stuff like that so right. the decking being set up for the tire strap the tire ratchet set up is pretty nice I just because because I, there was kind of tight clearances I did put one one suggestion I'd have is putting like a chain, a possible chain limiter on there where you could loop a chain around an under, undercarriage part of the car to keep the suspension from going under a maximum bump because it just so happened that this trip from here to Salt Lake was very bumpy. Free, it was freeway construction trip. Yeah. And I can't even imagine, I can't even tell you how much freeway construction they had just outside of Provo. And it was like, it was like eight seconds. That square back was trying to hold on and that thing was just bumpy. But for the most part, I didn't, you know, the testament to the trailer, it pulled straight. It didn't, even with the bus on the back, I didn't feel, and it was a little bit windy coming back. I didn't feel any kind of crazy That's cool. pushing on that thing. So the only thing that it, maybe I would change on it would would be the little bit of thought into if you wanted a little more versatility to to, to, to tow something a little bit taller on the front. But I think if, if you're towing, like if a guy's got a gear, like if, you've, if you own Carmen Gears, no problem. Right. Carmen Gears and Type 3s, no problem. You can configure the cars because I had the square back with the with the with the engine literally almost hanging over the tongue, right? And it gave me clearance in the front where I could pull the bus up on the back. And you guys will see web. You, you, and for for pictures of all the stuff that we're talking about, you guys can go to letstalkdubs.com/blog, and you can see the companion that goes along with this podcast. It'll have plenty of pictures with it. But um, it was really. I, I was surprised because I've always been whenever I wanted to tow two cars, you had to have. Pretty much almost a 40-foot trailer. I mean, I had a 35-foot enclosed, mm -hmm. and that's a whole different ball of wax to, to tow an enclosed trailer. So, And, and I'm sorry, you're not going to tow that with a half-ton class pickup Never. truck. You know? <laughs> no. Not at all. And, it, and as far as the versatility goes, there's going to be iterations of the stack light. I've had stack light max um, that I'm, it's on the napkin, so to speak, and it will mm -hmm. turn into something here in the not-too-distant future. And so there will be a little bit more height a little bit more length, you know, things like that. Uh, but the biggest thing is, is it's not going to fit everybody's boat, but it's going to fit 65 to 70% of the majority of lightweight car applications. I think for the, the, the car racing enthusiast or the husband and wife that have, uh, that have twin show cars and they want to take them to car shows sure. and they don't, they don't want to have to have a full rig set up and they want to do it with a half ton truck and they, they've got a side yard to park the trailer on. It fits. So, so that's kind of one of the things that was a little debate going on. Let's talk dubs where someone was like, Oh, my 40 footer will do that. You can't put 340 footer. And everybody was missing my point because my point was 
this is smaller than my 22 foot car hauler. My 22 <laughs> foot is 22 foot of deck. That's a lot of deck. Even empty, I feel that trailer behind my three quarter ton pickup. Yeah. This trailer behind with the square back on it, it was it felt like a small transport trailer. And impressively enough, it's like I'm thinking, well, if I own something like this, I mean, I I've, I have the luxury of living on a half acre, and then I have the half acre next door to my house, so I've got room for I can own ridiculous trailers and stuff like that. But for most people that that don't have that opportunity, to live in a subdivision with a side yard where they can tuck a trailer in. It's a perfect, it's a perfect trailer. So I think, uh, I think if you guys out there go check out stacklighttrailers.com. If you're looking for a way to be able to tow two, two of your either drag cars or race cars or um, your show cars to a show, and you're okay with them being open, I mean I've towed pretty much everything open. I'm not enclosed trailers. Almost kind of scare me sometimes because you. You're always worried about what's going on inside. At least, uh, at least, you know, at least, and here on the West Coast, we're pretty lucky. We have a lot of sunshine and we don't really have that inclement weather where you get caught and some stuff. But I think it's a, I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, I think it's a, it's, it's an ingenious design. I was, I was shocked when I saw it just based on how short the trailer is. That's what everybody keeps missing. Like it's a small trailer you could park in your driveway easily yes. on the side of your house and tow two cars. Like that's the caveat that everybody was like. Yeah, we want to play big trailer game. I won. I got a 54-foot ramp trailer <laughs> that like literally, I told my wife, it's the BFT. Right. And you got to keep saying BFT, babe, because I consider myself a pretty good dr- trailer driver. And I and, and after driving, I took my big 54-footer from here to from here to Phoenix for a car show. And I kept telling my wife, I said, babe, after like the third time I ran over and not, I didn't just run over a little bit of the curb. The wheelbase is so far back. I ran over the whole, like if there was a family on the sidewalk, they would have been dead. I was like, and I consider myself like a really good trailer driver. Right, right. And I kept, so I told my wife, I said, babe, you just have to say BFT, BFT. When I start hitting the brakes, you say BFT. So I remember and I go as far. And I mean, you're talking, I, on a 54 footer, I got to go far, far out there. Yeah. To make that turn, and your and, and this trailer with the wheelbase, the wheelbase to tongue ratio was, I mean, I was whipping in and out of like gas stations and parking lots and stuff. Yeah. Where like even with my twenty two footer, I've like oh, it's kind of tight. I'm like oh, but don't scratch Scott's trailer, and I was like oh, I made it. <laughs> so yeah, great design on that. I commend I you for that. that. Uh, a couple little tweaks and with the XL, I'll be. I think the XL will be killer because it's going to be it's going to have a little more height clearance. I think for the side by sides and stuff, and I yeah. think that one is just huge because. I can tell you a little trailer story about that. I was in a rush to go to the sand dunes and I'm pulling my fifth wheel with my sand car in it. And my wife, who's not a fan of pulling trailers, I'm like, hey, babe, you're going to pull the Polaris out there. So I took my 22-foot deck trailer and I put this little 12-foot Polaris on there. And I was like, I'm short on straps. I'll just put one across the floorboard. Not a smart idea. Uh So I just like belly strapped it down and... Everything would have been fine, but my my wife insisted on talking to her mother-in-law. So they're just gabbing away, and I, and I cut left to make the turn to go to the sand dunes. And my wife saw, oh, let me slow down. She maybe forgot a little bit. She was telling the trailer, and she hit the brakes a little aggressively. And I had to uh, have the back of the Escalade uh, repainted. And I was in the Escalade. I was a Yukon at the time. I had the whole back repainted. And then my and then my wife's like, see, I didn't want to tow a trailer. And I was just kind of like, I didn't want to say it was my fault. And I was like, why would you stop so short? Meanwhile, I put one strap on it. But the reality is this way you save yourself that headache and, and you can still tow two cars on one trailer. So that was that was huge. Um, I, I dig it. Guys, go check out the website at stacklighttrailers.com stacklighttrailers.com um scott so we've been at it for a little bit 
And I'm, pro- I'm probably sure to have you back for some other stuff because you've got tons and tons of technical knowledge. So if you guys have any questions on conversions, water-cooled, air-cooled, water-cooled conversions, what's the best thing? Guys, hit me up with all those questions. We'll have, we'll have Scott back on here to answer any of those kind of questions because I know a lot of you guys out there listening like to do those conversions, have a lot of questions. His website is renegade hi- renegadehybrids.com. That's correct. Renegadehybrids.com. There's lots of cool stuff to look at it. To look at, and Scott's more than willing. If you got an opportunity, you want to chat with him on the phone. He's more than willing to spend some time talking to you and kind of walk you through the process. So, um, man, anything else you want to leave us with? I mean, we've been on the podcast for a little bit, and like I said, I'm sure to have you back. But uh, anything else you wanted to chat about here while I got you here in front of my VW people? I got to tell you, you're an icon. Yeah, Yeah. I I just (laughs) from seeing you at Cars and Coffee from, you know, years ago and then out of the track and all that sort of stuff, just being such a huge contributor to the local, you know, as far as the Vegas life and the uh, VW life. And a lot of the times that we keep on crossing paths with people and so on and so forth, you you really you have a solid reputation. You are again, I'll say it, you're an icon and it's been an honor to be here. So thank you, Bill. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. And uh, for sure, we'll have you back on. And like I said, guys, if you want to check out some of the stuff we talked about, go to letstalkdubs.com slash blog and you'll find the companion for the podcast also to check out scott's stuff go to renegadehybrids.com and also stack light l-i-t-e stack light trailers.com and we'll have links to all that stuff on our podcast so uh, once again guys thanks for listening and uh, we'll check you next time later